I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Friday Golf Podcast. I am your host, Andy Johnson. Uh, today, we've got an awesome episode. Uh, this really centers around the APGA Tour, which, uh, for those that do not know, is a tour that's really focused on inclusivity and diversity in the game of golf at the highest level, at professional golf. Um, so the APGA Tour has been around for over a decade it was all started by Ken Bentley. He's the first of our two guests. We also have Aaron Beverly. Uh, Ken goes into just kind of starting a a golf tour, what his original goals were and what it's become. It's become something really pretty incredible um, and, you know, become a great place to play um, and a great place to develop diverse talent in the game of golf, which I think is super important. Our second guest is Aaron Beverly. Aaron Beverly uh, played on PGA Tour Canada as well as uh, the APGA Tour this year. Great guy, lives in Sacramento. Uh, met him earlier in the year and and wanted to get him on the pod to just talk golf in his career. So um, I spent this week, uh, Sunday through Tuesday out at the APGA event down in Pebble Beach. It was the Cisco Invitational. It was uh it was the it was a historic event in terms of the APGA. It was played at Spanish Bay and Spyglass. Um and it was the first ever 54 hole event for the APGA and it had the biggest purse ever in APGA history, $150,000. $50,000 went to the winner, which was Wyatt Worthington. You you've probably recommend recognized that name from the um, PGA Championship. He's qualified for a number of PGA Championships. He shot sixty four uh, in the final round at Spanish Bay. Which for anybody that's been out there, there are disasters waiting at every turn. There, uh, it is a really tricky golf course, a really uncomfortable golf course, and sixty four is a really great score there to win. He beat a a slew of players. Um, there's there's a lot of talent. I played um, I played in the pro am, which was it was kind of cool. It was during the round of golf. Uh, it was during the second round of the tournament. So I was playing with uh, with a couple guys, Marcus Bird, um, as well as uh, Jared Garcia. I played with those guys, and we it was during their second round of competition, and uh, it was it was really neat. I mean. I, both guys were super impressive. Jared was three under through three, uh, ended up shooting, I think, one under on the round. And then uh, Marcus Bird, who you might recognize that name. He was the Charlie Sifford exemption to Riviera this year. He actually won the Lexus Cup, which is like the APGA uh, Player of the Year race. Um, that He won that, and he'll get full status on the PGA Tour Americas, which is Canada, Latin America next year. Definitely a name to watch. He hits the crap out of the ball and really, really uh, magnetic personality. But along with that, you know, they I, I spent a lot of time with the players. Um, 
you know, it was just fun. Uh, you know, you go to these PGA Tour events and, and nobody wants to talk to you uh, as a media in, in, member. And at, at the APGA event, it was just it was so nice to just talk with with players, hear their stories, where they where they played college golf at, um, how they've been playing on the tour. And uh, it was super fun. So, you know, that was a it was a really great experience. Uh, and I think, you know, the companies like Cisco, um, Farmers, other companies that have really put some financial backing behind this tour uh, deserve to be applauded for what they're doing, really advancing the game of golf. Uh, I plan to pay a lot closer attention to the APGA tour moving forward. And I hope to see some of these guys make it to the highest level of the game. I, I think that, you know, I obviously go to uh, the majors. I go to a couple PGA tour events a year. These guys hit the ball, um, you know, at a level that they can, they can play. It's about putting it together. And I think Ken talks about it. I, and I agree. It's about providing an opportunity for them to develop and play. And, um, you know, I, I talked to Marcus Bird after his round and, and, uh, he was telling me about how after college he, he was working at UPS. I mean, this guy was in the top 100 of the world amateur golf rankings and he was, he didn't, cause he couldn't put the money together to play professional golf. And it wasn't until COVID happened, he still had exemptions and he played some amateur events with the money he was making. Uh, caddying and working at UPS and he played a few amateur events the next summer and then he got some some people to put some money behind him but like you know the thought of like a top 100 amateur player not being able to even pursue a professional career think about that in like the context of any other sport think about it in the context of like hey this is one of the 100 best NFL prospects and he's not going to get a chance to play in the league because he can't, you know, afford to play, you know, developmental and, you know, football, it doesn't work. It's not an apples to apples comparison, but it makes sense. Like there needs to be places to play that support the players. And I know like, you don't want to make these tours destination tours. You don't want, you know, it to be a place that, you know, you can make a living here, like a great living here. Like you want the highest level of golf rewarded, but like, just the nature of golf is it's very difficult um, unless you have financial means or access to financial means. And I think that's one of the things that is great about what's happening with the APGA is that it is providing a bridge um, and an opportunity for people to get better um, without, you know, fifty to a hundred thousand dollars of expenses a, a year and allowing them to play for some cash like, you know. I mean, Wyatt, Wyatt Worthington making 50000 that's going to really change his life. So without further ado, let's get to Ken Bentley and Aaron Beverly. And uh, thank you guys for, for listening. All right, Ken, I, I'd love to hear how you got into golf personally. Well, I was working at Nestle uh, and I was an executive at Nestle and I'd been a tennis player all my life. Uh, went to college on a tennis scholarship. And I found that I was missing out on all the meetings. The guys were playing golf and I swore I was never going to play golf. It was too slow, slow. It wasn't, you know, my kind of game. But then I found I was missing all, all those meetings, those four hours on a golf course. 
And so I decided I would just play and learn well enough so I could play in those uh, just corporate outings. And the first time I played, I was so bad. You know, I, again, I swore I'd never do it again. And then I went out again and took a lesson. And I hit a couple shots and then I was hooked. I, I just I just fell in love with the game. Gave up tennis. Uh, just went to, I mean, when I first started playing, I was single at the time. And so I would go to the driving range after work every night. And I'd hit 200 balls. And the guy who worked at the range um, he would say, okay, you know, if you want to stay afterwards, uh, you can hit balls till midnight if you wanted to. And I would actually hit balls until midnight. I just, I just love the game and I still do. I mean, I still, you know, I think about it all the time. I'm one of those golf junkies. I, I buy all the latest clubs and, uh, you know, I love talking about golf. And the funny thing is all the guys I grew up playing tennis with are now playing golf. And so uh, it's just been, it's just been, it's a sport of a lifetime. And I hope to play for as, as long as I live. Were you, were you living in LA when you were, when you started playing? Yeah. Was I'm it, the, was it by chance the Westchester range? Yeah. I, I spent many a nights at that range oh, in my really? 20s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I used to go to Westchester and I used to play that, uh, which was crazy. It was like a almost like a video game playing that course at night. Did you ever play it at night? I, I didn't ever play it at night. I was just a ra- I was just going there for the range. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I love that range, actually. But when you play Westchester at night, they actually have the worst lights in the world. And the, and the <laughs> they didn't look good. All the place. <laughs> balls are flying all over. So you take your life in your own hands. And then you got the planes. The planes are going yeah. all over. It's oh, a, yeah. that is a, it's, listen, that range is just, if, if, if you want to, if you want quintessential LA golf, mm-hmm. that range is, is just, you got every, every type of, every profile of Los Angeles golfer in in one place at that range it is uh it's an incredible experience i i i remember i lived there in my 20s for a little bit and i was you know a golf junkie and that was the that was the range that i went to all the time during the week oh yeah so. i love that place a great putting area that big that big putting green yeah yeah when you were described when you said lights and i, I was just like oh, it, it had to be that range yeah it was Westchester. yeah music going it's uh it's an awesome yeah. awesome spot it's uh hey speaking of tennis you, you uh, being a big tennis player did you, did you watch much of the u.s open and uh you know a resurgence of american tennis this year Oh, big time. Yeah, I, I was glued to the TV. Um, it, it, the Americans have really made a statement. And as we as we talked earlier, I mean, it, it's intentional. They have a great player development program. I mean, they looked a, a few years ago and American tennis was down so far, especially on the men's side, that the USTA invested a lot of money in player development. And you've seen the results of it today. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible to see just the young uh, talent. I, I as somebody who recently moved to the the West Coast, uh, the U.S. Open, unbelievable for anybody mm. that lives on the West Coast. Maybe not the best on the East Coast, but those matches, especially you get uh-huh. in those quarterfinal matches, 
And there's nothing better than that light match that you you you're enjoy. You know, it's under the lights and everything. Um, so I want to talk about your your work in golf and um, the, the, with the, you founding the APGA. Um, obviously, I think it's a tour that has gained a lot of momentum, uh, a lot of exposure over the last few years. But I want to go back to the start. What made you want to start the APGA? And can you tell us about you know, kind of the early days of the APGA? Well, I used to, um, as, I, as I said, I was a tennis player. But so once I got into golf, I twice a year, I would get my friends together and maybe it would be 30, 40 guys. And we would go to different parts of the country and play golf. Uh, we would raise money for charity in those uh, places where we would go. And so at one of these, we called them gatherings. And one of these gatherings um, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, Adrian Stills, who had played on the PGA Tour. And so we were just talking about why there weren't more African-Americans on the PGA Tour. And, and he said when he came along, there was a United Golf Association Tour, which was kind of the Negro Leagues of Golf. And he had a chance to hone his game. He built camaraderie with players. And he felt like if we could start something where guys had a chance to play and develop their games, we could get some guys on tour. So I went to uh, two companies I was associated with. I was at Nestle at the time. So I got a grant from Nestle and I, I'm on the board of Farmers Insurance. I got a grant from them and I put some of my own money in it. And we started in 2010 with three tournaments. And I, I'll never forget that first tournament at, at Rogers Park in Tampa. Um, and, and we didn't know what to expect, right? We, it was just a whole new concept. We send notices out to guys. And here were 60 guys, mostly African-Americans, on the driving range, beautiful swings, you know, all fired up, excited about this opportunity. And, um, you know, we had no idea where this was going to lead. So we started with just three tournaments, $4,000 first prize. I think we had our whole budget was like $40,000 that first, uh, first few years. And if you fast forward to today, we've got 18 tournaments, over a million dollars in prize money and bonus money. Uh, we're playing on um, iconic golf courses, uh, places that host U.S. Opens and PGA Tour events. So, yeah, we've we've come a long way. And I, I had um, um, a person, one of our sponsors, asked me yesterday if this has been more than I envisioned back when we had that conversation. And yeah, it's been, I, I never dreamed, I thought we'd just have some tournaments, right? We'd have a few tournaments uh, on inner city golf courses, but I had no idea in 14 years we'd be where we are today. Yeah, I I think that's the beautiful thing. I, I would say that this is entrepreneurship uh, about entrepreneurship is you start something and you kind of have an idea of where it could go and i'm sure in your in the back of your head you might have believed it could be this but you you kind of go on this road and and a lot of things happen that um you know that are you know it, it just big moments and then you get to these places and you you say oh, i never imagined that this was going to get here with the early days uh, are there any humorous stories from like the courses or purses or 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 players early early in the APGA that gives kind of kind of give kind of color of of what the tour 
was when you started up? Well, I think, you know, it's a couple stories. One, um, we were out at Chester, Washington, right? It's a, it's kind of a legendary golf course where they used to, it's the, the road going into Chester is now named after Charlie Sifford because he played there. But we would, um, we'd go out there and again, you, you just have no idea, but, but those guys won't go to Riviera. The people that, that play it regularly at uh, Chester, they don't go to Riviera to see professional golf. So when you're sitting around there, they're talking about Tim O'Neill. You know, they're talking about Willie Mack. Those are the guys that they talk about that are, you know, professional golf. That's professional golf to them because they actually got a chance to see those guys. They follow them. Um, And I I think it's amazing how uh, those guys, our players resonate with those guys. And and another, another story, I'll give you two. One to show you how important I think uh, diversity is in golf. So we're at Torrey Pines and uh, farmers had a clinic. And so they had Willie Mack, uh, they had um, Billy Horschel, uh, Ricky Fowler, and one other player, I can't, Bubba Watson, I think, doing the clinic. And so they had 50 kids and there were three African-American kids out of the 50. And so they allowed the kids to self-select what line they went into and what player they would actually get instructions from. And the black kids immediately went to Willie Mack. Now, they hadn't seen him on TV, but when they heard he was a professional golfer who looked like them, uh, they stayed in his line the whole time. Um, they were so fired up. Um, and I think it was it was just so great to see how excited these kids were to see a professional golfer. The other one is kind of a sad story. We're we're at uh, we're in Texas in Dallas at a tournament at Craig Ranch. We played the first we played the first round, and then we noticed that they're punching the greens in the fairways. So we go in the pro shop, and and we said you know we're having a pro tournament out there. And they, and they said, oh, well, your guys won't notice the punch greens and the punch fairways. So it's crazy. We had to play the second round with punch fairways and punch greens. But I think, you know, it, it, that would never happen today. I think there's a lot more respect for our guys. Um, there's a, you know, there's a general feeling that, you know, our guys can play and they've proven it over time. So, uh, I think those early days too, I couldn't get phone calls returned. Um, you know, I, I, I think it was just that, that idea that people just didn't think we could be successful. Um, now it's, uh, it's just like a whole different world. Did you ever have your own doubts about whether you could be successful at that point? You know, the thing I, I, well, I, I think we made a, a turning point for us has been a couple turning points. And, and you asked me if I had doubts. I had doubts about whether I'd be able to get a whole bunch of corporate support. So we made a decision probably three or four years in. Um, we were having trouble getting corporate sponsors. Um, and so we I went to some of my friends and I just said, you know, if we if you guys believe in what we're doing, then we got to put our own money in. 
And we got to get it to a point where people will believe in us. And I think that was a big turning point. So I got a bunch of my friends together to put in money. And so we were able to add a little prize money. Uh, also, the PGA Tour came on in 2012. And it was a it was a weird situation that uh, we got a, a check in the mail from them for like six years in a row. Just no, uh, we never met with them. Um, they just sent us a check every year in January. But the check, but the fact that they believed in us enough to invest money was great. Um, a big turning point in that relationship was in, I think, 2018, I get a call from Allison Keller, uh, who's the chief operating officer o- over at the PGA Tour. And she said, you know, I, I noticed that we've just been sending you this check every year. Um, and we don't know what we get for it. We don't know a lot about the APGA. So either we're going to stop sending the check or we're going to invest heavily in the APGA. So you got to come in, you got to talk to all of our executives, you got to tell us what you're doing and what your vision is for the future. So you just been getting a check. Yeah, just got a check in the mail. And six years later. Yeah, six years <laughs> later. We ask you to come in to talk. Right. That's amazing. It was, it was crazy. But, you know, it was uh, the reception once we went in and presented our vision was amazing. Uh, and they've been an unbelievable partner for us. That's uh, what I mean. What do you think initially drew them? Did you ever find out what initially got the check coming in? And then what were what was the big thing that they they do you think resonated about the APGA with the PGA Tour? Well, Steve Mona, who was head of the World Golf Foundation, he had contacted uh, he came to one of our tournaments. And uh, he was really impressed with what we do. So he called a friend of his at the, and I'm not sure who it was he contacted, but he contacted a friend, somebody at the AP, at the PGA tour. And that's how we got to check. And they just, you know, we, we uh, tried to make contact with somebody over there, but we just never did and got to check in the mail. Um, but I, th- I think what, there are a few things I think that resonated with them. One, we had, sustained success over. We had been in existence then for about six or seven years. And we had started, the the players had started to play better. Um, You know, I think they saw the passion that we had. And by then, you know, we had a big vision for the APGA. After we had been around for six or seven years, I saw this idea of where we could be. You know, I saw the I had the vision of where we could take this organization. And I think they were they were impressed by by the passion that we had and also that the vision we had for the future. What what was the I guess do you do you recall was there a moment where your your vision became this grand vision uh for the APGA and it, from you know just hey we're trying to do a couple of tournaments as you mentioned at some city courses, you know, when did that change? You know, I, I think uh, it started to develop when we got the opportunity to have a tournament at Torrey Pines uh, alongside of the PGA Tour event. When the farmers, when Jeff Daly, who was the CEO at Farmers at the time, and I had a conversation and I told him about the APGA and he thought it was a great idea. It took us a while to sell it, 
to uh, you know the PGA Tour and to Century Club. But once we did, you know, once our guys got on site, and there, uh, the amazing thing was there. You know, Torrey Pines has the North Course and the South Course, so our guys were on the North Course while the PGA guys were on the South Course at the same time. So you're walking the same fairways with Tiger, Rory, and you've got the signs up. There's thousands of people there. And to see and to have all those people asking about the APGA and to see our guys in that environment, I think that's when I really started to say, hey, this thing could be really unbelievable. And then when we got the final round televised live a few years later, I mean, that was another breakthrough moment to see our guys on national TV uh, in a live tournament. So I think the I, I think getting to Torrey Pines was a watershed moment for us. Going back to the early days, I think uh, anybody that started something generally uh, longs for the some some parts of the early days. Is there a specific aspect of the first couple years of the APGA that you really miss now that you've become this, you know, really developed tour, um, you know, nationally recognized tour, a tour with, as you said, over a million dollars in prize money. Is there something you miss from those early days where you're just kind of throwing together tournaments? You know, I miss going to those inner city golf courses because as I mentioned, you know, our guys were heroes out there. You know, we we connected with the community. Um, there was a different feel, and and I miss that. You know, you you don't get the the same feeling at Chester, Washington, that you get at Valhalla, right? I mean, it's a different, it's a whole different vibe. You don't get the community as involved. But you know, you you can't prepare guys for the PGA Tour if you're playing Chester, Washington every week. So you have to have it. But I. I really think we got to go back to some of that. I think we, if if we're going to help grow golf, we can't play all of our tournaments on, uh, you know, those so far away from the community. Uh, so I, I think you'll see us in the future bring some of that back. We still got to prepare the guys for the PGA Tour, so we'll still have those iconic golf courses. But I think we'll sprinkle back in the Chester Washingtons and the Rogers Park. Yeah, I mean, and, and hopefully um in the next few years the, you know, golf movement of some of these city golf courses getting worked on and elevated continues. I know one course that's that's about to start a big renovation project is Cobbs Creek in Philadelphia. And that mm-hmm. golf course, uh, you know, if you read back to when it was built, was one of known as one of the best golf courses in the, in the world. Uh, another project would be in Washington D.C. with their three courses, with uh, East Potomac, Langston. You know, those golf courses getting work done could elevate them to a spot where a hosting a tournament wouldn't be. You know, we aren't taking a step down. You know, and I think that's something just in general with golf is that. You know, sit inner city golf. It shouldn't be different. Um, as somebody who lived in a city and played at city golf courses in Chicago and in Los Angeles, like you shouldn't. It shouldn't have to be a. Uh, you know, I'm playing city golf versus going out to the suburbs and playing suburb golf. Right? There shouldn't be a difference. Um, just in general with the golf, I I think that you know these golf courses have enough uh play, enough support. 
um, that they should have, you know, better facilities in general. So um, what do you think about the the APGA um, and you think about just individual success stories? Is there is there one or two that stand out to you? Well, I think the, the two big success stories for me, uh, one is Willie Mack. I mean, Willie Mack is an amazing, amazing story. Here's a guy who was homeless six or seven years ago, uh, living in his car. And you, you, you talk to Willie Mack and he had to play tournaments every week because, you know, for us, when we stand over a four foot putt and we talk about the pressure of it, you know, for Willie Mack, it, it meant the difference of whether he had dinner that night. If you made that four foot butt. So that's real pressure. And to see Willie Mack now a full member of the Corn Ferry Tour, um, you know, it just it really, really does make me feel good and makes all this hard work worth it. And also and, and Tim O'Neill is the other one. I mean, Tim O'Neill was with us um when we first started, played in our first tournament. Um, his disappointments in, in tour school, Q school has been well documented. Um, he's, you know, he just was on this grind for 25 years, uh, a good player, but couldn't get to the next level, uh, played with us for 13 years. And now he's a full member of the champions tour. He's won almost $400,000 on the champions tour. And it's great to see Tim um, just in those kind of lights, considering all what he's been through. And Tim was the great thing about Tim is that he was such a big mentor to our guys. They looked up to him because Tim was a real professional. You know, he took every every time he stepped on the golf course, he treated it like it was a U.S. Open. You know, he was professional. He went about his craft with a professional attitude. And it's so great to see him now on the, the Champions Tour. I think another one, the last one, for me, is one of the most inspirational guys I've ever met is Kevin Hall. I mean, here's a guy who his parents found out uh, he was deaf. I think he had meningitis or some illness when as a kid at two years old. Lost his hearing. Um, and, and the parents made a decision right then that Kevin Hall would not be a kid that people would feel sorry for. It would be someone that would pursue his dreams and would be able to do something that everyone else did. And to watch him, you know, win twice this year, um, be our player of the year a few years ago, uh, always has a smile on his face. I mean, he's just a true inspiration. I remember playing, he played in uh, the Genesis. Yeah. Uh, the Charlie Sifford exemption. And Kevin was walking off the green. I think it was the 14th green. And this little kid came up to him and he he handed him a ball. And Kevin, you know, was making a motion like, do you want me to sign it? And the kid said, no, read it. And the ball said, you are my hero. And he handed it to Kevin. I mean, it, you know, it's just moments like that that uh, just give you chills when you see you know what the the impact our players have had on golf. Yeah, and I think I think the thing with with um kind of the stories that you you brought up, the players you brought up and it I mean, professional golf, so much of the coverage goes to the phenoms, the players that are immediately tour players, right? But one of the 
you know, wonderful aspects of professional golf is the the grinders, the guys that, you know, that make it out to the tour for the first time at age 38, age 39. Oh. Um, and the, and the, you know, Tim O'Neill working his ass off until the Champions Tour is a great example of, of somebody perseverance. And I think one of the hardest things about professional golf is finding places to play golf that mm-hmm. you can you can turn a profit to keep the dream alive um to you know in Willie Max's case to to have a meal to eat but also a place to play golf to get ready for the Corn Ferry Tour and I think like obviously I think one of the challenges with professional golf for anybody that's even considered pursuing it is is the the monetary burden that it presents mm-hmm. um what have you guys done to try to, you know, bridge that monetary gap that, uh, you know, the monetary kind of mountain that faces any aspiring professional golfer? Well, four or five years ago, we surveyed our players and we found out that most hadn't been fitted for clubs, that they were practicing on first tee courses, that they weren't uh, taking lessons from top name professionals. So we started a player development program and we take the guys that we feel have the most potential to make it to the PGA tour. And we pay for all that. We pay for lessons. We pay for them to join a club. We pay for, um, make sure they have the right equipment. Um, we also pay for them to go to Q school. We pay for them to do five Monday qualifying and a PGA tour corn fair event. Um, we've got a psychologist that works with them. And so we've been, uh, we, we, uh, did a deal with full swing. So each one of the guys in our program has a full swing launch monitor. So we're trying to, to fill those gaps, um, that, you know, the, the financial gaps that these guys have and through our player development program. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's, Obviously, you think about other sports, and this isn't necessarily a challenge that other sports face uh, in terms of, you know, the financial burden. Is there any sport that you guys look at and try and draw from from what they're doing uh, to support players and, and, and use some of their tactics? Well, I think tennis is a classic example, because um, I think the the player demographics for tennis are similar to golf. And, you know, the the equipment is not nearly as expensive, but the travel and the tournaments that you have to play um, and uh, the lessons and everything are right, are similar to golf. And so what tennis has done is they created a diversity program a number of years ago, and they decided, look, we're going to make tennis uh, available to everyone. We're going to take cost out of the equation. And so if, if a tennis player shows promise, uh, the USDA pays for everything for them. Uh, they pay for all the travel, their lessons. They have these performance centers around the country that kids can go and take free lessons. And I think that's why you see uh, so many kids that grew up playing on public tennis courts now at the highest ranking um, in tennis, in both men's and women's tennis, you don't see, you don't necessarily in tennis have to come from a country club in order to make it to the top levels because the USTA has put so much of their resources into it. So that's what we use 
And I look at that model um, and try and replicate what they're doing. And in, in just in, in general, when you get beyond the APGA and beyond your tour, what does, you know, the, what are the big benefits of having greater diversity in the professional game? What will that do for golf in the long run? Well, I think, uh, you know, a couple things it'll do for golf. I think, and, and again, you see it in tennis. You just, it brings more people into the game. Um, you know, when you talk to our guys, um, they all, and you say, well, why did you get into golf? And they say, I saw Tiger. Yeah, I saw Tiger win the U.S. Open. I saw Tiger win the Masters. I saw, you know, I saw Tiger. And that's the kind of, you bring more people into the game. Um, you have on a business side, you have more consumers that'll buy the goods. Um, I think America's changing. The demographics of America's changing. So you can't continue to survive if you have one demographic playing golf. And so I think we've got to reach out to everyone. I mean, women, uh, it's great to see more women playing. Um, you know, you go out to, to uh, a place like Westchester. We talked about Westchester. Westchester looks like America every day on the driving range. And that's the beautiful thing about it. And, and that's what um, we're trying to get golf to, to look like Westchester all over the country. Yeah, I uh, it's it's definitely as different, you know, when you there's all these different spheres of golf and different ways that people experience golf, different places that people experience golf with uh, the APGA. I think obviously you you've grown to an incredible place in, in recent years, um, as you as you alluded to early in, in the podcast, what. Uh, are your goals for the next five years? Do you have any grand ambitions and, and where do you continue to see this tour grow and growing and getting to? You know, it's uh, it's interesting that you asked that. We have a committee now that we call APGA 2030. So we we uh, we got uh, one of our board members, uh, Keith Houlamard, who was the president of the Jordan brand. Uh, he's heading that project up and we're looking at all aspects of our organization and to see where we want to be. You know what? If I had a crystal ball, you know, I'd look at one thing I, I think we have to do is we have to have a women's uh, component to our organization. You know, we can't bring greater diversity to the game if we're only focused on men. Um, I had a, I went to uh, the Mac champ championship that. Uh, Cameron Champ does for the top minority kids in the country. And so I went there and one of uh, a father came up to me and he said, you know, I have a 15 year old son and my son, uh, all he talks about is one day playing the APGA tour and he gets so excited. He follows the results and, you know, he can't wait till he graduates from college and can play the APGA tour. He said, but my, my daughter is 16 and she's an even better player. And she says, why isn't there a, an APGA tour for me? What am I going to do? Uh, you know, and how fair is that? And so the dad said, you know, you've got to think about that. And so since I had that conversation with him, I think about it all the time. Um, I, I think the future's got to hold a women's tour for us. Um, you know, I don't think we need more tournaments. Uh, we certainly have 18. Uh, we don't need more tournaments. 
I think we need more development money. Uh, we need to to have these guys play more tournaments outside the APGA tour. We need to um, get to the younger kids. We started the Cisco Junior Series. We've got to put more resources into developing kids. Um, so I, I see uh, the other thing that's a, a tough conversation is I don't want the APGA tour to be a destination. Now that's the danger in the prize money that we have um, that, that guys could make 150, 200,000 on the APGA tour. It's a blessing and a curse because, you know, there's not many tours around the, the world that you could make 150, 200,000 on. So yeah, we if, wanna... you're, if you're doing that on the corn Ferry tour, you're, you're going to the PGA tour. Yeah, you're like going that's to the, the challenging. I have a friend that's been on the Corn Ferry Tour for six years running and he barely makes a living. It's like, what do you do? You're you're one or two good weeks away from being on the best tour in the world, but you're not in, a, you know, as you put it, a destination tour. And that's something that the PGA Tour has been very, you know, reticent about is keeping it, the you know, prize money low in order to not make it that. And and I think that's what we've got to look at. We've got to make we've got to make the APGA tour a pass through. The guys play five to seven years, get their cards, go go to the corn ferry, do something else. But we've got to make the mindset. And I tell the young people that get on the APGA tour, I don't want to see you here past five years. Take the APGA tour, take advantage of all the resources we have. And then move on, and I think we've got to we've got to really hone that message, um, and we got to give the guys the resources to make sure that they they're ready to make it to the next level. Um, and that's the big challenge for me is to give them all the resources they need, and then get them to move on to the next level. How do you guys go about identifying players that that are a fit for the APGA tour? Well, we have an application process. Um, that this year uh, we turned away probably a hundred players that applied for membership on the APGA tour. We feel like with our infrastructure that we could handle 70 members. Um, And then once you also, you know, we, we, uh, we set a, this year, a couple of years ago, we set a, a standard that you have to shoot a certain score in order to retain a membership. And, you know, in the old days, we were fighting for people to play our tournaments. So, you know, we had guys shooting 85, 90, um, and we cut all that out. So you have to shoot a minimum score in order to play the APGA Tour. um, And that's up the quality of the play. And it's also reduced the number of people we have playing. And we're okay with that because we want the quality to be where it is. I imagine, I, I mean, you always see this in, with any sport where there's uh, more money in the sport, you know, you get better athletes going there. I think that's something that's very true about golf in general with Tiger Woods. Have you seen a similar thing with the APGA and the quality of, of players interested in playing since you have had kind of a lot of success on the corporate and the purse side of things? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, we have a number of guys now that 
would probably be playing basketball or baseball or something like that. That would that are really really special athletes, and I think you see it in the the swings and and uh, how they approach the the play. I mean, these guys are athletes, but I think the next thing for us is the mental aspect of it. Um, Kirk Triplett, who plays on the Champions Tour, came out and watched our guys play, and he said they hit the ball. If you if you uh, if a person went out to a PGA tour event and went to one of our events, they wouldn't be able to tell the difference in how guys hit balls. Cause our guys can hit the ball. I think it's the, uh, the next evolution for us is the, you know, how you approach it. Um, and we have a psychologist that, that works with our guys. And I think that's where we'll put a lot of resources, you know, getting top level coaching, talking to our guys about the mental aspect of it. Yeah, I mean, so much of golf is self-belief and so much of right. self-belief just comes from being in big moments and, and achieving things or not even achieving things, but being in the moment. And the only right. way you get there is with opportunities. Um, going back to, we talked a little bit about junior golf and, and development. How how can um, the junior game and how we... Uh, as a golf ecosystem develop and identify players improve and, and really I think like fun players, we talked a little bit about tennis, the idea of when somebody shows promise and putting economic support behind them. Yeah. I think we got to get to that point. Um, I think we have to, we have to, we have to start the kids early when they start to show promise. Um, Cameron champ foundation does a really good job of that. They they really do a great job of identifying the top minority talent in the country. Um, Jeff Champ has a database and he tracks all those kids. So I think, you know, the next step for us is now that we've identified those kids is to provide the resources for them again, like tennis does. So a kid won't have to drop out of golf because they can't afford to play. You know, that that to me is one of the if you talk about one of the things that disappoints me most about golf and, and in our time at the APGA, I think of a, a guy like Josh Wooding. Josh Wooding was an All-American at SC, um, did really well out on the mini tours initially and just ran out of money. You know, at 29 years old, just ran out of money. Couldn't uh, he had to give the game up and he's doing really well as a stockbroker. Uh, but if you ask him, I think he would still love to go back and play. And I would want to I don't want in the future guys to say I had to give up because I didn't have the money. I'd like for them to say, oh, I'm going to leave the game knowing I had the resources. I had the opportunity. I just didn't make it. And I'm going to go to something else. I don't want them to say that money and resources were the reason why they left the game. I think that applies to every level of golf, too. Right. I think you think about um, anybody that watched the Netflix show, the full full swing. uh, They talked in detail about Tony Finau and the sacrifices his family made just for him to be able to afford to play tournament golf. I mean, you think about you know, what goes into tournament golf, uh, as a junior and you know, that that's where you get recognized and where you get the opportunity to, to move and play at 
college uh, at a college program. And the better you play in these tournaments that are, you know, tournaments you have to travel to that cost money to get into, cost money to travel to, the better you play at those tournaments, the better chance you have of playing at a, a better program that will continue to prepare you. I mean, it's a stepping stone type of, uh, you know, pursuit, you know, in, in the, the toughest thing about anything. And I think it, it's becoming greater. The burden is the financial burden of junior and amateur and, and professional golf is just becoming more and more difficult um, as the tournaments get further away and and bigger and and have a bigger entry fee right no i i I agree with you i i do think that there's there's a um recognition that there is this barrier and i think people are trying to knock the barrier down but it's just not coming down fast enough for us um you know we're we're trying our best but you know you again you you got to go back to um, it's not only resources, financial resources, it's opportunity too. Um, I think you got to get these guys to have to have the top level coaching. They have to have the opportunity to play on great golf course, to practice on great golf course. Cause you can't, you can't expect somebody to make it to the PGA tour practicing on first tee courses. You know, you can't, if they don't have the proper equipment, Sean Foley was telling us that, um, you know, PGA tour guys, they change their wedges almost every month, you know, because there's, they factored in that if you got new wedges, you know, you could be so much more precise. It, it, and so our guys had, had wedges five, six years old. So you can't ask them to compete with guys that are, that have brand new wedges. So I think all those things come into play. Yeah, you know, it, it, you made a great point too about courses. I I remember as a kid, it, you know, qualifying for the state tournaments, like qualifying for a state am. One of the most exciting things was you knew it was going to be held at a big time course. And as somebody who grew up at Lake Bluff Golf Club, a muni that didn't have like the be- it didn't have good greens. It you know, they were spongy, they were slow. There was always like a shock when you went to these courses at the pace, at the speed of the game. I mean, I right. think like we've talked a lot about tennis. I imagine when you move up a level in tennis, the biggest thing that's a struggle is the speed of the game, the athletes, right. the pace, the balls coming back. With golf, it is it is a big step up when you go and play a state amp. It's a bigger step up when you go and play a US Am or a US Mid Am, just the pace, the setup of the golf course. And it goes back to, you know, these club like even at the state golf association level, these clubs opening their doors and providing opportunities to play at the venues that could host, you know, big tournaments uh, for kids, like a junior oh, a junior am. At, at, at a state level being held at a very good golf course is important because it gives, you know, a kid an opportunity to go play high level golf and understand the difference that they're going to see at, at if they want to play a college at, at a college level, the difference yeah. in golf course they're going to see, right? It allows them to go play, get their, you know, they might get their ass kicked, but they come back and they go, oh, because this is the way golf works. You play a tournament, you get your ass kicked, and you're like, oh, I need to get better at X, Y, and Z. But if you're never right. given the opportunity, then you you don't get those learning experiences. Oh, no, I agree with you. I, I 
you know, if you if you play Chester and uh, practice every day at a place like Chester, and then you go and play Baltusrol, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like a whole different world. And and the thing that was interesting about our guys at Torrey Pines, they didn't get a chance to play a practice round on the South Course. You're playing PGA Tour conditions too, which right. like people, I mean, it is it's insane what regular rough is for them. Right. And then it was raining and cold and windy, and you play in a golf course you'd never seen before. It, it so it was a it was an eye opener, and so. You know, some people say, you know, was it beneficial given that the guys couldn't play a practice round? I said, yeah, it's totally so. You know, you get that that experience. They'll play better. You just want more experiences just playing in those kind of conditions. So Alyssa, uh, kind of on, on the way out here, what who are a few players that you're, you know, really excited about, maybe from their just their personal uh, sorry, you've talked about Tim and Kevin and uh, Willie Mack, but, you know, a few players that are, you know, on the tour now uh, that you're either really excited about from their personal standpoint or from just the play, the level of play you've seen. Well, I think the the the, the main guy this year who's kind of dominated play is Marcus Bird. I mean, Marcus Bird um is one of the most talented guys you'll see. He hits the ball long. He's got great hands. Uh, he became a YouTube sensation at Torrey Pines. He, uh, on a par five, he was 280 out, had to go over water and hit a driver off the deck to 10 feet. Uh, that's the kind of guy he is. He's, I think he's got to tone some of that down because you don't want to hit a driver off the deck over water too often. Um but but he's just a really talented guy. He's won four times this year. Uh, Chase Johnson is another one. Chase was on the Corn Ferry Tour for a couple of years, um, had some injuries, and just lost his confidence. Um, he's won a couple of times on our tour. Really talented guy. Really, really talented. He won the John Shippen as well. Uh, he's a guy that, that I think will be back on the uh, Corn Ferry Tour next year. Just a really talented guy. And then you you look at, um, you know, our APGA collegiate guys. Uh, Troy Taylor out of Michigan State. He was the number one guy in our APGA collegiate rankings. Um, really talented guy. His, his dad was a point uh, four-year starter at point guard for Ohio State when uh, Clark Kellogg was there. So he's from an athletic family. Um, he's going to be a really good player, somebody you really need to keep an eye on. Um, so there, there are a number of young guys out there. I'm just so impressed with the young guys. Um, Roman Solomon is a young kid who's actually Bobby Bonilla's son. The no former, way. Yeah, so he's playing at, at Pebble. Bobby Bonilla is still getting that uh, that contract. I always love oh, yeah, Bobby. Still get that. <laughs> Bobby will be there. Bobby, and you know, Bobby has is so invested in his son's golf career that Bobby goes to every single tournament that his kid plays in. And Bobby's right there. uh, Doesn't walk as well as he used to from all those uh, home run trots he had. Um, But, but you know, Roman Solomon is a good young player. You'll, we'll see how he uh, competes with the pros, but he's 16 years old. Uh, He's going to be a really, really good player. So you'll get a chance to see him at, at uh, Pebble. Awesome. Awesome. 
Um, that's great. And then uh, last question, how can people help? What what What's the way just a r- regular guy can help and how can, can somebody else help the APGA in any way? Well, I think there's a few ways. Of course, we always need money. You can go to apgatour.org and make a donation. We need, we need uh, financial resources. But we also need volunteers. At all our tournaments, we need volunteer scorers. We need uh, people to come and help out in a variety of ways. And you can go to our website and find out the different ways you can volunteer. And the other way that I think is equally as important as the financial resources and the volunteer is when you see one of our guys, just tell them that you believe in them. Just tell them that that you you know you're there supporting them, that you you want them to do well. All too often, our guys don't hear that, you know. So what I do as often as I can, as I tell the guys, I want to see you successful. I'm going to put all whatever resources I have to make you successful because I believe in you. And if you can do that, if a person sees an APGA tour player and they can just say something inspirational to them, that something's just as simple as I believe in you. I think that's as important to us as the money and the, the time spent volunteering. Yeah. And I think a lot of people listening to this are just golf nuts. I, I imagine that just, uh, just following along and, and, and being a fan is, is a mm-hmm. lot too. Just, uh, you know, every tour needs more fans. Right. Yeah, we could use more fans, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ken, for coming on and uh and and I look forward to uh following along as as your as the APGA continues to grow and uh and become a uh a more and more household name in golf. Well thanks for having me on and, and thanks for what you're doing for golf. I think you know, your podcast and, and just the work you're doing helps to grow the game and, and uh, helps all of us that are involved in this game. All right, that's it for Ken. Let's jump in with Aaron Beverly. All right, Aaron, uh, I got to ask, you know, we when we met last year, we were talking about the the hope of the Kings. It was it was kind of uh we weren't sure. They were scratching the surface. They obviously had an incredible season. Uh, I became mm-hmm. kind of a uh, a fake Kings fan when I moved out to California, but I a fan nonetheless. Tell me, uh, how what are your expectations? Do you just feel uh, an exuberance about the Kings that you haven't felt in uh, in a long time? Yeah, I think the best part of last year, I went to game one against the Warriors in the playoffs, and I've never seen so many people just downtown around the uh, the arena. And just the energy, like, I don't think any of us sat down the whole first quarter. I mean, the introduction was great. So it's, it's awesome to see. My expectations for them this season is to take another step, you know, leap forward. Uh, I want to see Zabonis play a little bit better in the playoffs try to assert his dominance a little bit more so i don't want to go as far as western conference finals because that's that might be a stretch but definitely into the second round of the playoffs at least yeah yeah i i feel like they were they were the feel-good story the nba last year um and they were just like i i couldn't believe how fun they were to watch and and i think there's like an added level of as corny as light the beam is it adds this like level of fun and energy in the stadium. I mean, that's the thing about yeah. that 
that, uh, that I got to get out to a game uh, this year. I I was really kind of uh, upset with myself that I didn't make it out to, to a game this year or last year, but this year I'm going to mm-hmm. remedy that and play a little golf in Sacramento while I'm out there. There you go. Just give me a call. We'll go golf and then go to a game afterwards because it is – the, the light, the beam chance when they start in the fourth quarter and whether it was at home or whether it was on the road. I mean, it just it was awesome to see just the whole city finally come around and just have something to cheer for, you know, and a winning team to cheer for. Because Sacramento fans have always been loyal. We just haven't always had the teams to, you know, be proud of. So it's great to see. One question. How far can you see the beam? Like, can you see it? Oh, you like across the city on on a clear night? You can probably see if you're driving from davis which is about 15 20 miles yeah you can see it from a long way yeah so it's uh, you can see any part if you're in sacramento you can see it anywhere you're at that's for sure hey i was reading some articles about you and uh i came i stumbled across you're you're really into ballet as a kid yeah yeah really into ballet How'd you get into it, and and what you know, like what's being into ballet mean? Uh, like mm-hmm. what what does that mean? Yeah, so it started. My mom was dancing, uh, and she ended up taking me to class when I was three. And the way she tells the story is, for like the first thirty minutes, I was doing really well, and then for the last thirty minutes, I just sat there and cried. <laughs> so uh, bless her heart, she ended up taking me back to the next class, and I just ended up falling in love with just dancing in general. So I was dancing around the stores, dancing around the house, just kind of, you couldn't like really stop me from dancing. So ballet was something I did from three to about 17. Um, It was a lot of fun. I got made for made fun of for it in high school, which was, you know, it just makes you tougher, but I enjoyed it. It taught me a lot about discipline, taught, you know, gave me flexibility. Um, and just I think it translated perfectly into golf and kind of just athletics in general because you have so much body awareness and body control, which is great. And yeah, I'm very thankful for my time doing it and still love to do it when I have time. Yeah, you you kind of answered my next question is I I think like we've gotten into this space with athletics just in general, where everybody wants to specialize in things at a really Mm -hmm. young age. And when I read that, I was thinking, I was like, God, what a great activity. Like you'd never think about it, but like, that's a great activity for golf because Mm -hmm. of the balance. And as you said, balance, flexibility, body control. I imagine that there are just so many, um, your body has just muscles and, the ability to do things that other people can't. Yeah, I would say like, core strength is a big one. And obviously, leg strength is huge. Uh, obviously, when you're jumping in ballet and you're trying to get as high as possible and you're doing pirouettes and you're trying to turn as much as possible, you know, you're using muscles that uh, like most athletes wouldn't think about uh, or most people wouldn't think about. So it's one of those things that at the time when I was doing it as a kid and as a teenager really wasn't conscious about, Oh, this is going to help me further down the line of my golf swing. I just did it because I loved it. Uh, but looking back on it, it's definitely one of those things that's for sure has had its benefits. Did you do, uh, did you play any other sports growing up other than, uh, than golf and, and ballet or I, yeah, I played basketball, a, played it, baseball. Do, do they consider it a sport ballet? It should be. I right? consider it an art form, art form. Cause art there's form. no, so sports is always a competition. The ballet is no real competition. You're just performing. So I just, I just go with art form. 
Okay. A physical, a physical by, art, as, physical I'd say art. It is form. by far the hardest thing I ever did. Like the summer intensives where you were dancing for six hours a day that like that beats 36 holes in one day in golf without question. What, what drew you to golf from, uh, compared to the other sports? What, what was the thing that made you want to play golf in college and pursue it as a profession? I didn't have to rely on teammates for my success. And because when I played baseball, I was a pitcher and a shortstop and, you know, I'm not to brag of one of the better players on the team and I could do all I could and we could still lose. And so that was always just frustrating. And so I didn't want to have to rely on my success being determined by other people. So that's what I love about golf is it's all on me. And obviously you caddy and coach, but at the end of the day, I'm the one hitting the shots and, you know hidden putts so i i just love the individualism of it i feel like when you get more the more players are involved in a sport the less an individual impact can have like right yeah you know football for example you could have a really good football team and no real superstar um Mm -hmm. you could have but then you get into like the nba and and if you don't have one of the guys, you got no chance. Yes, you, you got no, yeah, and no it's like shot. The you difference can... between five guys and a 53 man roster, right? Like, yeah. it's just amazing. And then obviously, golf is in tennis are the two real, you know, big individual sports. And, and it's, yeah. I always find it humorous when I was watching a lot of US Open tennis recently, how like, you know, ten, they got their coaches in the box, you know, and these yeah. guys are like yelling at their coaches. It's like, what are they yelling about? They're they're the ones yeah. hitting the shots, you know? Yeah. And I like my example I used this the other day was I would hate to be Shohei Otani and be by far the greatest player of a generation. And we can't ever win. Like that would just really frustrate me. So I, yeah, golf is golf. Got Mike, where it's at. Mike Trout too. Yep, and still can't. We got two it's, of the best players in the league. Can't win. I mean, like that's what everybody was saying about Mike Trout before Otani was like. This mm-hmm. is the this might be the best baseball player we see for decades, and then Otani yep. comes along on the same team, and they still stink. Yeah, still can't win. It, it reminds me when I was a kid and we had Barry Bonds and Jeff Kent, and we still, I mean, we got to the World Series, but we couldn't win. So it's just, yeah, frustrating. Um, so you played golf at, at uh, Sacramento State. You had a really good mm-hmm. career there. I, I, you're two-time conference player of the year. Uh, what's your favorite college golf story? Or one that you think, one you think about a lot? Oh, I got two. I got two because this first one I brought up the other day. Uh we were playing this my sophomore year playing at Washington State's home tournament at Palouse Ridge. And it's my 71st hole. And I think I'm like five or six under a turn, like seeking in the top 10 somewhere. And I had this downhill putt, it's like 20 feet. And my parents are off watching kind of like 20, 30 yards away. Hit the putt, race it by like nine feet. And my dad says it, he says, doesn't he know it's downhill? And he didn't realize that he said it loud enough to where I could hear it. <laughs> And so I looked at him. I was like, yes, I know it's downhill. I just hit it too hard. And then I made the comebacker and I was like, hey, see, that one is just as good. And so we walked to the next hole and him and I were just laughing. Uh, So that's always just a a fun memory. And then my other one was winning conference with my team senior year. Uh, I ended up winning individually. And it was one of those rounds where I was leading going into it and then a freshman from northern colorado uh colby welch he couldn't miss a putt on the front nine 
And I think he ends up taking like a three shot lead in every hole. I was just, he'd make a 20 footer then he'd make a 30 footer. And I looked at my dad, I'm like, is this going to continue all day? He's like, I don't know, but you're going to need to start making birdies at some point. And so we get to the last hole and I had a one shot lead. He hits it to 30 feet and I hit it to like seven and he hits his putt and I'm watching it. I'm like, that's thinner cut again. And he hit the back of the cup and it popped out. And I was just like, oh my God, this kid is unbelievable putting. But thankfully I was able just to two putt and win and we won as a team. And it was great because we had lost by like two strokes the year before. So that, that meant a lot. There's uh there's nothing worse than when you're playing with somebody and like and you just you just like expect every putt to go in and they're yep. hitting putts like it's rolling especially when you get in match play situations like oh, yeah. where you're just terrified that it's going yep. in. No. I was just sitting there because I kept hitting good shots and he ended up making birdies and I'm like wow this is incredible but yeah that was that was a lot of fun. When did you decide that you wanted to pursue professional golf as a uh, as a, a career? Uh, when I was probably about six or seven, somewhere in there. Uh, we watched Tiger, I mean, every weekend, every Sunday. We'd play golf in the morning, play nine holes in a little short course that was like 20 minutes away. Thankfully, Tiger always had usually an afternoon tea time on oh, yeah. Sundays, so... <laughs> So we'd come back, we'd have breakfast, we'd do some chores and then sit down on the couch and watch them for four or five hours. And just, I remember being so captivated as a kid, just watching obviously the fist pumps and, and everything about it. And I was like, okay, I want to do that when I get older. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that most people in our, our, our age range probably fall into the same bucket with, uh, with, with Tiger Woods being a driving uh, inspiration in, in any level of golf that you played and, uh, or your just general interest in, in the game of golf. Um, mm-hmm. do you, do you have a, do you have a, a favorite, uh, tiger moment from your childhood? Is there something that sticks with you? I got a couple and I, I'm just curious what yours are. Yeah. See, I got two again. So the first one, the first one is a lot uh, like the corny story, but when he won the masters in Oh five and had the chip in on 16, we were watching it and we watched the chip in and I was so excited watching that. And the way my home course, like practice green was set up, had this huge slope. And so I went to the course, grabbed like five balls and I sat trying to hit the same chip for probably three hours. And it wasn't good enough. If it like rolled up the hill and went to the hole, it had to try to stop. And so for three hours, I'm sitting there trying to get the ball to stop on the lip. And I think I maybe did it kind of once. Um, so I just remember that. And then the one that's like really minuscule that no one would really think about, he was playing, I want to say this is 07 or 09. He's playing at Firestone in the final round. He has a match or he's battling with Podrick Harrington. And I think it's either 15 or 16. Tiger, I think it's par five. Tiger's a good driving. It's an eight iron. So like two feet or a foot and a half. And Podrick's kind of some trouble he hits bad shot then he hits it over the green then he hits it into the water then he's got to go take a drop and way back in the fairway and the whole time i'm thinking oh tiger's just gonna tap in but he's just standing on the edge of the green waiting for project to finish and i think project ends up making a seven or eight on the hole and i just remember thinking i'm like wow he just the intimidation that he put on him by hitting a shot to two feet was incredible and then i think i had a high school match probably like a week later, two weeks later, and the same like type of situation happened where I hit a shot close and 
other kids off hitting it into water and taking a drop and hitting it back and forth. And he's like, man, you can go ahead and finish. And I said, no, I'll just, I'll wait. And so just, that's one of those things. And I, I don't know why that one sticks out in my head so much, but it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, this guy is really intimidating to everybody he plays with. And that's pretty cool to watch. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's amazing. I'll, I'll never forget. I was watching live from that. I think it was Saturday night of the, uh, of the masters that he won in 2019 and David Duvall, mm-hmm. everybody was making their picks on who was going to win. And David Duvall was just like tigers winning. And they were like, yeah. why? And he was like, I saw the look in his eye and I haven't mm-hmm. seen that look in his eye in a long time. And he's winning the tournament. Yeah. And it was just That's like, it's like wild. <laughs> like it's just yeah. a wild thing when like a guy that was in the, in the arena with them, like mm-hmm. I'll never forget that call because of like just the, the conviction and the way mm-hmm. like everybody's got these like you know you you're picking somebody to win you got these reasons it's like I just saw it in his eye like I is you know and, and I mean just intimidating I dominant yeah. like there it's just a crazy thing it had to be a, a crazy experience obviously a crazy experience getting the Charlie Siffer uh, exemption a few years ago into Genesis and then getting to spend some time with Tiger um what was that what was that like was it was was it like just I explain to me like the lead up of that and and then in the moment how that was. Yeah, so it was it was interesting. So the week I showed up, I got there on Sunday and then Monday I had to play uh in the college jam in a group and so I show up to the course at like six o'clock and the guy that kind of runs everything, Mike Antolini, stopped me as I was walking to the range. And he goes, hey, you know how we said you were going to do a, a little like media session uh, or uh, interview? I said, yeah, on Wednesday, right? He goes, yeah. I said, well, you're going to do that with Tiger now. I said, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, it'll be the two of you at a panel and it'll probably take about an hour. I said, why'd you have to tell me this right now? I said, now mo- the rest of Monday and Tuesday, I'm screwed because I can't think of anything else other than having to sit in front of uh, cameras and, and on the stage next to Tiger. Um. And then Wednesday comes along and they said, all right, we want you to have a chance, you know, to meet them beforehand and get a chance to talk and everything. So they end up walking me up to the third story at Riviera, which I didn't even know it had three stories in the building. And he was doing an interview in the room and said, all right, please just wait, you know, right here. He'll be done in a second. I said, okay. So I'm making short conversations with everybody that was there. Are, are you really sudden, nervous I- right now? Oh, I, my hands started sweating. I was like, my I could hear my heart beating in my neck, which was really weird. Um, and all of a sudden, like I'm in like mid conversation with these people, and then you just feel—I don't even know how to describe it—you just feel like a presence. And all of a sudden, he walks around the corner, and I just remember looking. And I was like, "Wow, he has really broad shoulders." <laughs> that was like my first thought. And then he walked up. He said, "Hey, I'm Tiger." I'm like, "Yeah, I know. I'm Aaron." In case you didn't know. And so we kind of laughed and then he asked a couple questions about uh, the course and how I planned on playing it and stuff. And it was really just a normal conversation from which I thought was pretty neat. Um, and then obviously we did the press conference and I remember sitting first, I remember walking into the room, they opened up the doors and I said, Oh Jesus Christ, there's way more people than I expected. And like 80 cameras. And so we walked onto the stage and I was so happy that there was water on the stage because my mouth was dry and had no idea what was going on. And I just remember sitting there when they were asking a bunch of questions and I would look over and I just felt 
like in a dream. I'm like, wow, that's really Tiger just sitting right there. <laughs> so, do you cool. have any regret? Is there something that you wish you had asked him, or or something you wish you had said in that moment? Not really. I'd ask him a question on how to play the fifth hole, par three, because green sets up strange to Four, me. Fourth uh, hole. Right, fourth hole, yeah. yeah, 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 fourth hole. I don't think anybody uh, so green, knows how to play that hole. Yeah, honest. Green just sets up the wrong way for such a long iron shot, and because he had asked me what I like my ball flight normally is, and I said, "Oh, it's usually kind of a draw." And he goes, "Oh, that's perfect." I was like, "Yeah, but on that hole, it runs away with the draw." So I'm like, every time I hit it, it just keeps going to the back or over the green. And so we had talked about hitting a high cut and everything. So I didn't, yeah, that was neat. Yeah, yeah. Um. With uh, with playing professional golf, I what what's been the toughest thing from going from a very good college player to playing professional golf? What's been the the biggest challenge in terms of just uh, being a professional golfer? I think it's just the self discipline you have to have because when you're in college, you know you're you know the team's working out Monday, Wednesday, Friday uh, at six a.m. That was always our schedule. Uh, your tournaments are already booked for you. You know you have five in the fall, six or seven in the spring. Yeah, you you know where you're practicing at every day. You know, like our coach will give us drills. You have qualifying. You, have, you know, you just you have a set schedule and you know what you're doing. And so, when you turn professionally, it's now it's just all on me. I gotta be. I gotta schedule. You know, when I'm playing and where I'm traveling to, and just have to be disciplined enough to say, okay, I'm gonna get up. I'm gonna work out. And these are the things I'm gonna do. I'm gonna eat right. No one's you know cooking my meals for me now. I don't get to just go to the the cafeteria. Um, so I would just say that that self-discipline is probably the hardest part. Uh, but it's one of those that's rewarding, too, when you see everything work out the way you want it to. So you're like, OK, I know I'm doing the right thing. So I'm taking care of myself and and it's I'm good to go. You've played on the APGA Tour since the early 2010s. Um, pretty long time. What's been, you know, uh, I mean, I imagine the growth, how it's changed has been remarkable. What do you think's the big, the biggest thing that you look back on? It's like, wow, I can't believe that's the same tour as it is today. I just, the courses I think is the biggest thing and the level of competition now is, is incredible. I mean, every week, uh, someone's always going, or just group of guys is always going low. It's not like we just have one person that, you know, predominantly shoots 10 to 12 under. We got a whole gang of guys that can shoot, you know, anywhere from, 68 to 63. Um, so the competition level, and then obviously, like I said, the courses and the, have the ability to play the TBCs, whether it's TBC Sugarloaf, Louisiana, Vegas, uh, having the Farmers Invitational out at um, Torrey Pines, and then obviously now the Cisco Invitational being at Spyglass in, in Spanish Bay. It's like you take where we were playing, you know, Chester, Washington, and LA, and a couple other courses. And, and you look at where it is now is is truly remarkable. And I know that's something that we're all very thankful of that we get to play these championship courses and and have a have the opportunity to say, okay, this is where they play on tour and this is how I stack up and, and so it's neat. What's been your favorite course that you guys have played? Honestly, my favorite one was probably Baltistraw. It kicked my ass, but it was it was really a, a great test of golf and just mental fortitude because I'd never I never played a course where if you just hit a remark, like just slightly bad shot, you screwed and it turned into double so fast. So it was neat to be put into that challenge and that atmosphere. And then TVC Sawgrass, cause I'd seen it so much on TV. So that was cool just to play 17 in the tournament. 
It's so I, I think that's one of the the great things about about golf when you're developing or trying to get to the next level is those moments where you clearly take a step up and a lot of times it happens at, at in the tournament sense whether you're a junior and you play in a state am or whether you're an amateur you play a USGA event I imagine at the pro level it's like I'm playing a PGA tour event right at Riviera yeah. like that's a huge mm-hmm. step up but when you do that you walk away from those tournaments, whether you play well or play bad, you get such a nice barometer on where you're at. When you played that, you talked about Baltusrol, you know, being just this level of golf course. What did you walk away from that? You, you know, you said it kicked your ass, but what did you walk away from that thinking about your game and what you needed to work on? Uh, the first thing I thought of was mentally how I was able to just stay in it. Cause I think the first round I shot, 41 or 42 on the front, but had five birdies in a row going on the back. So it was one of those things where I know my younger self after a bad front, I would have just probably checked out and been frustrated and just wanted to get off the course. Um, but I was able to just stay in it and stay focused. So that was one of those moments. Where I was like, all right, good for me. I can, you know, I can still, whether it's a bad start or I get off to a good start, I'm always in it. I don't need, I can't take myself out of it. So that was, that was good. And then I was like, I need to work on my wedges to make sure I can hit them a lot tighter. Cause if you do hit it in a bad spot and you have to bail out, you want to be able to, you know, hit a wedge in there inside 10 feet and give yourself a look at bar. I think, that, yeah, to me, that's like one of the crazy things about really high level golf is just how when you get out of position, then you have to hit great shots to get into position to save a par. Yeah. And and it's extraordinary how easy the top tier players in the game of golf make this look, but how mm-hmm. challenging it is in yeah. real life, right? It's yeah. just and the discipline yeah. the discipline of of understanding when you have to take your medicine or versus mm-hmm. risk, uh taking a risk is is just such a difficult thing to weigh. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. And it's one of those things I remember seeing it as a coach when I helped out at Sac State. And you see these kids getting getting into trouble and, you know, you play it in your mind as if you were a player because you're kind of playing caddy at the same time. And, you you know, you give them the safe option just because that's you're like, all right, this is the smart play. There's no no bad thing that will have worst case we make bogey. Uh, but, you know, as a player, you look and like, oh, I see that gap in the tree. That's a little nine. I can get through there. And and you just have to have confidence in your player all the time and so it's you weigh it and hopefully if you can execute it well then everything's great you were uh you just hit on this you were assistant coach at sacramento state uh i uh, how many years did you do that two and a half covid kind of cut it cut a little short what what were the biggest advantages for your personal game from that experience you just see different ways of playing golf. Like we had five kids and, and all of them played five very distinct ways of playing golf. One kid could hit it really far like myself. And another kid was short, but always hit a bunch of fairways and a bunch of greens and was good with his wedges. And then one kid was super creative, could hit these low shots and these big swoopers. And, and so it was just interesting to see five different ways of how to try to get it done. And so you try to take pieces of that and like, okay, well, I know if I get nervous on a tee shot, I can hit that low one like he hit. And it's, you know, the driver might only fly 270, but it's 270 and it's going to go down the middle of the fairway every time. Uh, And then there's advantages, obviously, to just 
hitting it far and, and maybe slightly crooked, but if you can, you know, hit it far and have a wedge in, that's an advantage. So it was, it was neat to see where you could pick a piece and take something from everybody. Yeah. What's uh what's your favorite moment from the early days of the APGA? Favorite moment from the early, ah, oh, this is, ah, oh, this is a, a good ish, bad story. So we had a tournament in Arizona and I show up and see all the guys and, see one guy that I'd seen in college he went to Northridge and and obviously I went to Sac State and I'm looking at him and I can't remember his name and it's killing me I'm, I'm just staring I'm like god I don't know what his name is I'm like hopefully he doesn't come say anything to me as soon as <laughs> I grab my putter came I, up. yeah as soon as I grab my putter and I go to the hole he walks over oh, hey Aaron how you doing I was like oh what's up man how you been he goes no 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 you got to say my name. And I was like, oh, no. And I, I'm like, I'm staring. I'm looking. I'm thinking. I said, I'm going to be honest, man. I don't remember. He goes, it's Aaron. I was like, oh, God. I overthought the hell out of this. So it was, and now so it was Aaron Grimes. And now him and I are pretty much best friends. And we travel all the time together. So it's just funny that we had seen each other in college. We'd always said hello. And, and for whatever reason, my mind went blank. And I was overthinking it because he had the same name as me. So there's nothing worse than that moment. When <laughs> oh, it was horrible. <laughs> it's like, you know, so you need to know the name. I'm not yep. good. I'm not good at names. I'm not good. Yeah. I'm like pretty I've terrible. Tried to get, yeah, I've tried to get a lot better after that moment specifically. <laughs> it's uh, so you, you had status on PGA tour Canada this year uh, mm-hmm. as well. What, how was it balancing two tours? So you have the APGA schedule, you have the Canada schedule. I imagine mm-hmm. it, it, probably was difficult yeah it's one of those things you just try to weigh what is what's most important like if i play and how i figured it in my mind is that if i play really good golf on both tours which one benefits me the most and uh i looked at it as playing well on canada if you finish in the top five you're automatically moved on to the corn Ferry. and abga if you finish and be the top player then you get full status on what's now going to be pj tour americas so i waited and i decided canada was probably the better stretch and that's what i did this was last summer um and so i ended up playing seven tournaments up there and and i thoroughly enjoyed it and it's four-day tournaments are uh, more of a challenge than two-day tournaments obviously because two-day tournaments from like a sprint and the four-day tournaments are, well, I mean, in Canada, they're pretty much like a sprint marathon because everybody scores so low. Um, but, yeah, it's it's an interesting balance. But it was nice to play up there and travel up there. And then with the times I could come back and play on the tour, it was really nice to come back and play on the APJ because it felt like I was coming back home to my family. And it was really happy to see all, all the guys and everybody. So that was, that was neat. What were your big takeaways from uh, the uh, PGA Tour Canada? You got to make a lot of birdies. I mean, we had one cut where it was six under par was the cut or seven under par. And so I, you know, I play, I like to just play boring golf and, and not, you know, if it's drivable, I'll weigh my options, but usually I'd take layup and hit a wedge. And so I, you know, I'd shoot a bunch of one under two under rounds and that just wasn't low enough. And so it taught me that you just have to be aggressive. You got to keep the pedal to the metal at all times and, and really important to leave the ball below the hole. And so you can have uphill putts so you can be aggressive, uh, be birdie putts. So it's a fascinating, um, 
thing with all developmental tours, even down to the Corn Ferry Tour, is we see you see this and you see players talk about this when they get up to the PGA Tour, just how drastically different the golf is on the PGA Tour yep. because the golf courses demand more patience, demand more, yes. you know, like understanding when to, you know, versus... You know, at, at the Corn Ferry Tour level, Canada, you know, some of the Latin American courses are really tough, actually. Um, but yeah. but they those courses are there's just not repercussions for aggressive play and they're shorter and, and different. Like, it's just such a different style of golf. And I, I don't know really what the fix is to get, you know, there's just only a finite number of golf courses in, in the country that are a willing to host and b you know, willing to test the top tier players in the game of golf at this point. But it is, that is a challenging, I think that resonates with like anybody that's been on those tours is just, you know, and you see it like sometimes the best, better players on the corn ferry get to the PGA tour and it just doesn't work and they're back down there. And it's in some of the guys that aren't necessarily, you know, thought of as the best players on the corn ferry the year before get up to the PGA tour. And it's like, wow, these guys are studs, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I looked at it as you know, like a couple of courses up in Canada. I just, I would hit a bunch of two irons because they're a little bit more narrow. And obviously, like you said, there's, there's shorter courses. But I mean, when I look at who would win, I'm, oh, he's hitting driver there. And, you know, if you hit a good drive, then you're pitching versus my two iron, I might have 90 yards out, 80 yards out. And obviously, the closer you are to the hole, the more chances you'll probably have to make birdies. So it, it rewards the aggressive straight player. Um, and where I think on tour, a lot of the courses like this week, they're going to be playing, uh, Silverado. You just, you can't afford to be out of position if you're aggressive. So you're almost better off just laying back a few times in iron and, you know, take the middle of the green and two putting. Yeah. And then there's a lot of variety in courses, right? You know, it's like, I, I'm friends with Zach Blair and it's like, you know, there's, you know, 12, 12 courses a year that he's got to, he's got to play well on because he's a shorter mm-hmm. hitter. Right. And Silverado is yeah. one that he's historically played really well at because it, it really rewards some, some accuracy off the tee. Right. Yep. And it's, uh, it's, yep. it's a really, uh, it's an interesting aspect. Um, you know, like what outside of the, outside of the, um, four rounds versus two rounds. Were there any other big differences between the APGA and the PGA Canada? I mean, you're playing better courses on the APGA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the travel is a lot harder in Canada, I would say. Um, oh, I imagine. Yeah. Just cause you know, and out when you play APGA tour here, you know, we're in Atlanta, we're in Chicago, Vegas, um, San, San Diego, Orlando, and so it's it's kind of easier, and obviously you just know those places better. But when you're in Canada, you're in Victoria, and you're in Calgary, you're in um, Saskatchewan, and places I've never heard of. <laughs> and so it's just it's harder to get to, and I'm, there was some issues with clubs and rental cars, and just kind of just you don't know really what to expect. I would say all the time when you're traveling up there, so. That part of it is can be challenging, but at the same time, it can be a lot of fun. Like I, we drove through Banff. I'd never seen Banff before, and it was a nine-hour drive, and it might have been the most gorgeous nine hours I think I've ever seen in my life. Um, so it's you, I, I try to make the most out of everything, and so it just you kind of you take those those moments of frustration. It's just good times to be able to tell a cool story. 
Any uh, any crazy travel tales from uh, from any t- any point of your your PG or your your professional golf? Yeah, life? yeah. A buddy of mine, we were playing in Windsor, which is right across the Ambassador Bridge from Detroit, and we rented an air or staying in an Airbnb. We had the car. We play the first round. We go to dinner. Come back. It's actually July fourth. Uh, we go to dinner. We see a couple fireworks cross the the river, and then go back home. Take some, like, take our bags up to the car, but I'd left my travel bag in the car and he'd left a couple wedges, whatever. So we walked down the next morning, car had been broken into. Uh, one of his shoes was stolen, just one of them. Just one. And my, just one. <laughs> just one, one shoe. What kind of shoe was it? Were, a golf shoe? Uh, yeah, foot joy. He had the left one was stolen, the right one <laughs> stayed in the car. They were right next uh, to each other? They were right next to each other. <laughs> And so one shoe was stolen, two wedges were stolen. My travel hard case was stolen, which we were trying to figure out how, like, it just was a funny image of somebody walking down the street with this hard case. Um, so yeah, and it was a, a hassle trying to get it, everything, the insurance part of it all taken care of. And I had to go play right after I, I played in the morning. He played in the afternoon. So he dropped me off and we're driving cars, got in the, a window that's gone. And funny enough, I think I shot 29 on the front nine or, or something. Cause I was like, I just, I was really not worried about the golf. I was more concerned about the car. So I wasn't like really too focused on just playing, but yeah, it was, that was a, an interesting, frustrating time. I feel like when your mind is extremely preoccupied, it can uh with other things golf can goes in two very different directions it can either go yes. extremely well or very poor and there's no middle yep. ground it's definitely no middle ground i i completely agree with that completely agree with that um when you look at your career thus far um what is what's the best stretch of golf that you've played and what do you think was really really going well then uh scoring wise the best stretch of golf i've played is this past like three months i think when i was looking at my scores i've had one round over par in the last like 20 rounds uh in tournament play so that's been in terms of just like scoring average it's been the best and it's been been the best i've driven the ball best of iron distance wise has been good uh wedge distances have been good short games vastly improved from last year um now it's just a matter of putts falling and, and my rounds of 70 and 69 turn into 66, 65, 64. So that's been a good stretch. Uh, I will say the best golf I ever played for a week was my sophomore year at college. We had a match play tournament out at Spyglass, actually. The uh, NCGA match play tournament that's there every year. And I shot even on the first round and then four under on the second round to qualify for the match play portion, like the number one seed and won my first match, seven and six, won the next match, six and five, won the next match, four and two in the next match, two and one. And then got to the final match on Friday and was four up after the first 18 and then ended up losing on the last hole of the, the second match. But it was it was just like this incredible stretch of golf where nothing really seemed to go wrong. Like I I mean I probably shot sixteen to nineteen under I think in that stretch of all that golf and 
my dad was caddying for me at the time and we get done with the matches and we just smile and laugh because like everything we talked about in practice or whatever was just working for whatever reason which was cool mm-hmm. what uh what what's your plans for the uh upcoming year how what are you uh what are you trying to are you trying to do any of the q schools what's the what's the plan for 2024 2024 bunch of mondays is my strategy play all of apga tournaments but do at least 12 to 15 mondays because uh, i look at my style and my the way i'm hitting the ball now is i just need one or two good weeks of getting hot with the putter and the rest can be you know history so i look forward to doing that and traveling that that route and seeing you know and making it making it on to the tour that route and my plan is to go Corey connors with it and and money qualify and win and just move on that way be that'd be a good way to go you know uh the uh it's i always thought there'd be a good business in like hosting tournaments in in city like the city the tours in for Mm -hmm. like tuesday wednesday tournaments after a monday qualifier so then somebody's like you're not going there if you don't make it since there's you know it's a whatever five or four percent or two percent success rate right then you have a place where people can recoup cash right yeah you know and and keep playing and it's like okay like this isn't that hard like if you're going to set up a mini tour especially the way that things are set up now everybody wants to play these mondays and give themselves you know the a chance they've you know there's so there's never been so much talent in in the game of golf and there's so little places to play so Mm -hmm. it's like that would be a brilliant uh mini tour idea i feel like yeah definitely definitely and it's interesting because i remember when i was in high school the mini tour scene we always had two or three tournaments i think it's pepsi tour back then that would come through and always play. And I know they had the gateway tour and the Hooters tour and kind of just a whole bunch of whole bunch of them. And now all of a sudden there's like four and it's, it's weird that it's kind of, there's the most amount of golf ever being played, but the least amount of like opportunity to play, you know, a mini tour events and and grind that way. It's uh, yeah. And then almost all of uh, like a lot of them end up being uh, shifty and shady shadily run tours right yep. like the yeah, horrors yeah. of horrors of mini tours or the stories are just you know sometimes like the the latest is the big money classic you know but yep. um oh yeah when, yeah when no one gets paid yeah that just is yeah tough. So, um hey aaron i appreciate the time and look forward to continue to follow your career and uh and and we'll see you next week at uh in in monterey Yes, sir. I look forward to it, Andrew. It should be good. And, and make sure you bring all good weather and, and not just, you know, good vibes and we'll have a good time. All right. All right. That's it for another episode of the Friday Golf Podcast. Uh, I will be back next week, early next week, with the Ryder Cup. The Ryder Cup is here. So we will be doing a five things about the Ryder Cup with a familiar, uh, a friend of the program, Trevor Immelman will be on. He'll be, uh, you know, a captain, a captain of an internet, the most recent international team in the President's Cup. I just thought he would bring a neat dimension. Uh, obviously, he's never participated in the Ryder Cup, but he has led a team into battle uh, against the Americans. So I just thought he would be a great guest. Uh, and uh, I thank you for him for coming on. 
And uh, so he will be on Monday, we'll, or maybe even Sunday. We might release that Sunday. So keep your ears out for that. Um, thank you to Matt Ruches for editing and producing this podcast, putting this all together. And uh, thank you guys for listening. Uh, appreciate it. And uh, we are on the precipice of the last massive event um, on the golf calendar. And uh, can't wait to, uh, to get into the Ryder Cup week. Thank you.